0: Good morning everyone, and welcome to the segment of the San Diego Ramana Maharshi Zoom uh, broadcasts every week that we look forward to the most and that is the first Sunday of every month we have Michael James, uh, really a world-renowned scholar of Ramana's teachings joining us live from London for two hours. We bend the rules a little bit and go more than the 90 minutes we normally do because we could go for five hours probably with his wonderful answers to the many questions that come in. And Michael, welcome to you. We're going to get started in just a second. If you're watching us on YouTube and you'd like to join us live on our first Sunday, uh, wherever you are in the world, please feel free to do so. Send me, my name is Ted, send me an email with your information and I'll put you on the list. Send it to newsguy55 at aol.com. N-E-W-S-G-U-Y-5-5 at aol.com. And um, we become sort of an international group because of all the people joining us now, and uh, I think what we're going to do is get started without further ado. Because we have three pages of questions, and I, I want to say hello real quickly to Mickey, who's joining us also from California. She's been away with all sorts of reasons the last few months, the last few weeks, I should say. So let's begin with the first question. We we've gotten into this habit, Michael, where the first questions are the longest questions. Uh, So (laughs) be patient as I read it, but they're all of interest. This one's of particular interest to me because it touches on two wonderful topics that come up here over and over. Arjant Mahal asks, Michael, today I have a question regarding the difference between self-inquiry and surrender. I've heard you say, and I've also read that these two paths are absolutely identical. I haven't heard you say that, but maybe you have. In self-surrender, one has the attitude, whatever happens is the will of the Lord, and therefore one has no complaints, whereas self-inquiry is holding on to self-attention. I sometimes alternate between these two paths. I sometimes attend to the self, and at other times, if I catch myself worrying about something, I go to surrender. In surrendering, I have the thought, let Bhagavan take care of these worrying thoughts and I shall have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with them. I I smile because I've been there and done that. At this point, I don't have the worrying thoughts anymore, but neither is there self-attention anymore. The mind just gets busy doing other things or thinking something else. Though the goal of these paths is the annihilation of the ego, are these paths different whereas the practice itself is concerned. So that's your question. Is it okay to alternate between the two paths at the same time? Arjit, thank you. And here's Michael.
1: Uh, Yes, these two paths are complementary. Ultimately, they become one path. But self-surrender begins, in most cases, it begins prior to self-investigation. That is, over the course of many lives, we have gradually been going through a process of of spiritual development, of maturing spiritually. So the majority of people who worship God, um, who go to churches and temples and mosques and gurudwaras and synagogues and so on, they go there and pray for um, health, wealth, and all other, um, for the fulfillment of their worldly desires, for the removal of difficulties and the bestowal of all favorable things, not only in this life, also um, we want to thrive in this life and to uh, have a good afterlife in heaven or a better uh, next life or whatever our conception of, it, of life after death may be. So this is what people generally um, are generally praying to God for. So their devotion is not for God, but for the things they think they can get from God. So for them, God is a means to an end. They think if they please God, God will do all the things that uh, that they want him to do. So that is the majority of people who, who are religious in any way. They, they, their, their, their devotion is not devotion to God, but devotion to the things they think they can get from God. But slowly over the course of time, the the devotion matures. When we find that God answers our prayers, or at least it seems things are arranged in such a way that it seems to us that our prayers are answered by God, um, we we are, are. faith in him and our love for him increases and slowly we come to understand that the giver is greater than the gifts that is we have been praying to god for to give us this and to give us that but surely he he who gives us all these things is greater than the things he gives us so slowly our devotion matures from being devotion for the things we think we can get from god to devotion to god for his own sake so we know we continue doing the same, uh, same acts of worship, same prayers, same meditation, whatever it may be, but our motivation is different. Instead of being motivated by desire for the fulfillment of our uh, wishing, the fulfillment of our desires, we we are praying just for the love of God. We are worshiping just Him just for the, for His own sake. So this is when the real Devotion to God begins. If we are devoted to someone, if we are truly, if we truly love someone, our main concern is not about what we can get from that person; it is what we what we can give to that person. That is, if the love is genuine, we we want to always please the one we love. We want to do to make life easy for them, do what is favourable for them, even if it involves making sacrifice on our our behalf. But the greatest gift we can make is to give ourselves wholly to the one we love. So once the true devotion to God begins, that is where the path of self-surrender begins. We we want to try and give ourselves to God, to dedicate ourselves to God in whatever way we understand it to be um but we very soon understand that one of the main barriers between us and god is we have our own likes and dislikes we we understand but whatever happens it, since god is um it's it, since god is all knowing nothing can happen without his knowledge since he is all powerful nothing can happen without his consent and since he is all loving nothing can happen that is not favorable for all concerned so whatever is happening is happening in accordance with his will and is therefore what is best for us so whatever difficulties we may face in life we 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 understand that we should accept them as God's will, but it's not always so easy to do so. We we may want to accept it as God's will, but we have our own likes and dislikes. And um, it's not so easy to accept everything all the calamities and to accept them with equanimity. We find that we are we are our mind is agitated, our mind is um perturbed by the difficulties of life. We worry about this or that, what, what's going to happen, how I'm gonna pay the bill, this and that. That's all the activity of our will. So that shows us, but we are not, our will is not surrendered to his will. So we, we need to try to, um, to uh, uh, we, so we come to understand, but if, if I'm to, in order to give myself to God, the first thing I need to do is to give my will to God, surrender my will to God, not my will, but your will or as Bhagavan put it in Arunakta Patikam, ninishtam enishtam, your will is my will, imbadaku, that is happiness for me. So whatever you may will, that is, is, I don't want anything other than what you want for me, and whatever you want for me, that is happiness for me. Um, So even if you want to put me in hell, fine. I'm I'm happy because that's your will and I'm ready. Uh, that is happiness for me. Accepting your will is happiness for me. So this is the uh, surrender really begins with trying to surrender our will to the will of God. And if we have genuine love for God, we are thereby able to Uh, diminish the strength of our likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, because we we are learning gradually to accept whatever happens as his will, understanding that it is what is best for us. However, we cannot be completely free of likes and dislikes. We cannot be completely free of desires and fears so long as we rise as ego, because the very nature of ego is to have likes, dislikes, desires, fears, and so on. So as we go deeper in this path of surrender, we begin to understand that the real obstacle is not just our will. We ourselves are the obstacle. Unless we give ourselves wholly to God, we cannot surrender our will wholly to Him. So but but, the love matures to such a point that we want to give ourselves wholly to God, to lose ourselves completely in God. In order to do so, we need to cease rising as ego. And in order to cease rising as ego, we need to turn our attention within. Because as Bhagavan has made clear in so many ways, in so many places, but he makes it particularly clear in verse 25 of Uludunapadu. What he says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, he describes ego as a a formless demon or phantom. It's formless because it's got no form of its own. But ego cannot come into existence, stand or flourish without grasping forms. First the ego has to take a form as itself, and then it's constantly grasping other things. So what he says about ego is Urupatriyundam, grasping form, it comes into existence. That is as soon as ego rises, it grasps the form. What form? It first form it grasps, it grasps the form of a body as I am this body. So, urupatri uh, undam, uh, grasping form it comes into existence. urupatri nikam, grasping form it stands. That is, ego cannot stand, cannot endure for a moment without constantly holding on to this body as I. urupatri undu mika ongum grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Um, So, uh, that that is, not only does ego cling to the form of this body as I, in order to to rise and and stand, it is constantly feeding on other forms. That is, since ego is formless, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So in this context, forms means Objects or phenomena, anything other than ourselves, all, whether physical things or mental things, all are forms of one kind or another. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, these are all forms, perceptions are forms, memories are forms. So the mind is constantly, uh, as Bhagavan says, uh, grasping and feeding on these forms. So Attending to things other than the implication is that attending to things other than ourselves is the food on which ego depends for its survival. So without grasping, constantly grasping form, ego cannot stand for a moment. And then he goes on to say, Uruvittu Urupatram, leaving form at grasp form, because it can't stand for a moment without grasping form. As soon as it stops grasping form, it subsides. It, every night when we fall asleep, because we are too tired to continue go- going outwards and grasping things, we cease grasping anything, and we thereby subside in sleep. But because we don't subside in sleep by knowing ourselves, we 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 subside simply because we're too tired to continue grasping things. Ego doesn't thereby die, so sooner or later, ego is going to rise up again and continue the same um, the same activity or constantly grasping form. So what Bhagavan implies by grasping form is attending to anything other than ourself, because ego is a formless phantom. It hasn't got arms or legs or hands to grasp anything. So we grasp things in our awareness. In other words, by attending to things, we are grasping things. So the implication is that the very nature of ego is to Ego cannot come into existence, cannot stand, and cannot flourish without constantly attending to things other than itself. So, so long as we attend to anything other than ourselves, we are thereby nourishing ego. And then he goes on in verse to say, Te Dinal Otum Pidicum. Te Victory means, if seeking, it takes flight. So, what does he mean by if seeking. That means if ego seeks itself or seeks its own reality, if ego tries to see what am I or who am I, it will thereby take flight. Take flight means it'll run away. Because what he implies by that is we seem to be ego so long as we are attending to anything other than ourselves. But if we turn our attention back to, towards ourself, we cannot find any such thing as ego, because we seem to be ego only when we're not attending to ourselves. When we attend to ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. This is what he says in implies in verse 17 of Upadesha Undiya. If one investigates the form of mind without uh, forgetting in other words, without being, without negligent, without neglecting, without allowing our attention to slip away, it will be clear But there's no such thing as mind at all. What he means by mind in this context is ego, as he clarifies in the next verse by saying what the mind essentially is, is ego. So, we seem to be ego only when we don't attend to ourselves. When we do attend to ourselves, this ego runs away because it there is no such thing actually as ego. We seem to be ego only when we're not looking at ourselves. When we look at ourselves, it is clear that there's no such thing as ego. So that is what he describes metaphorically as ego will run away or ego will take flight. So. We can understand from this verse, and Bhagwan implies the same thing in so many ways in so many other verses and um, also in his answers to people's questions. The nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So if we want to surrender ourselves, how can we surrender ourselves? There is only one way to surrender ourselves to turn our attention back within, and thereby to subside back into our source, into, the, into the, the pure awareness I am, the pure being, what we actually are, which is the source from which we have risen as ego. So self-surrender, that is up to the point where we begin to investigate ourselves. What we are practicing, though we take it to be self-surrender, we are not actually surrendering ourselves. We are surrendering our will. We are surrendering. We're trying to give everything that we have to God. But eventually we have to give ourselves to God. Only when we give ourselves to God are we truly surrender. Is it is it, it does the surrender become self-surrender? So self-surrender can be achieved only by self-investigation. This Bhagavan uh expresses explicitly in the first sentence of the 13th paragraph of nana what he says in that paragraph is anma chintane tavira, bare chintane kumbavadiku satram idum kodamuk paranai thanai isenuku alipadam what that literally means is that the main clause is apmanista paranai iripadai thanai isenuku alipadam that means being as atmanishtaparan. param means one who is who is firmly established as oneself. In other words, being as we actually are is giving ourselves to God. But how can we be as we actually are? That's what he implies in the first clause, which means, without giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought, other than Atmachintana. Atma chintana literally means thought of oneself. But in, in what it implies is self-attentiveness. So what he implies there is we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thought. By being so keenly self-attentive, we are thereby being as we actually are, because by, the more we attend to ourselves, the more we subside. So finally, when we subside completely, we remain as we actually are. That alone is giving ourselves to God. So ultimately the the, the path the, the culmination of the path of devotion is surrender. The culmination of the path of surrender is Atmavichara because we can we can achieve the complete surrender of ourselves only by turning our attention within and thereby subsiding back into our source so uh, yes it, ultimately atmavichara and um, self surrender are one and the same thing but self surrender the, the surrender path of surrender begins before we come to the path of uh, vichara um, but Benji, so Vichara is the culmination of the path of surrender. So ultimately, surrender has to lead to Atma Vichara, and surrender is uh is culminates only in Atma Vichara. Um so uh that is the relationship between the, these two paths. So ultimately they are one and the same path, but Initially, we begin on the path of surrender before coming to the path of uh, um, uh I'll just go through what um, Harjata has written. Um, yeah, she says, I've heard you say, and I've also read that these two paths are identical. To say they're identical is an oversimplification. Ultimately, they become one. But that doesn't mean that um, but we can't, that is we, we we can put it this way we can begin to surrender without practicing self investigation we cannot even begin to investigate ourselves without thereby surrendering ourselves that is to the extent to which we turn our attention within we are thereby surrendering ourselves because by turning our attention within we are bringing about the subsidence of ego and subsidence of ego alone is surrender um and then she goes on to say, um, in self-surrender, one has the attitude, whatever happens is the will of the Lord. Exactly, yes. And therefore, we have no complaints. Ideally, yes, we have no complaints. But it's it's very easy to say, I surrender. I accept everything as the will of God. But when when it comes to it, when we are faced with difficulties, it is not so easy because we all have likes and dislikes. We all have viseyabhasanas. And so we, we to completely surrender our will to the will of God is not so easy. Um, but that is our aim. When, we are, when in a path of surrender, we are trying to give up our own will. We're trying to surrender our will to the will of God. Um, and then she says, I sometimes alternate between these two paths. I sometimes attend to myself, and at other times uh if I catch myself worrying about something, I surrender. Yes, I mean, this is the these two parts are complementary, so we should they should be going on side by side in our life, ideally, once we've come to the path of vichara that, that is surrender naturally accompanies vichara um that is to the extent to which we turn within we are thereby surrendering ourselves even when our attention comes out we we are trying to uh, to to not to assert ourselves not to assert our will i want this no whatever bhagavan wants for me that is what is best for me so i accept whatever he wants so the, these two should uh, need to go on side by side so that, that attitude of surrender is the greatest support to us in the path of bichara. Why we all find it so difficult? But Bhagavan has said this path of vichara is the easiest of all paths. But we all find it difficult. Does that mean uh, Bhagavan is wrong? No, Bhagavan is correct. There's nothing easier than attending to ourselves. But it seems to us to be difficult. Why? Because we are not willing to surrender ourselves, to really attend to ourselves. Entails surrendering ourselves completely, and we are not because we are not yet willing to surrender ourselves, we're not willing to let go and subside back into the heart. We make this path difficult for ourselves because of our unwillingness. So that's why uh, Vichara seems difficult. So when we are trying to follow this path, though our aim is to turn our attention within as much as possible constantly our attention is coming outwards And when our attention comes outwards we have to face we face the world and we have to experience all the uh, ups and downs of worldly life so uh, having that attitude of surrender helps us greatly in going deep, deeper and deeper within so the two um must go on hand-in-hand. Hand. If we don't have that attitude of surrender, whatever vichara we are doing will be very, very superficial. That The deeper our vichara, the more it will breed that attitude of surrender, the more, the more that attitude of surrender will naturally arise in us to the extent to which we go within. And then she goes on to say, in surrendering I have the thought, let Bhagavan take care of these worrying thoughts, and I shall have nothing to do with them. Yes, that is, um, as Bhagavan says in that first sentence of the 13th paragraph, which I um which I referred to earlier, we that is when he says um Giving no room to the rising of any thought other than atman chintana. That means our aim in surrender is to cling so firmly to self attentiveness, but we have no, that we give no room for the rising of any other thoughts. How does how does self attentiveness give no room rise for the, room for the rising of other thoughts? Because thoughts cannot rise if we don't attend to them. R- thoughts only arise in our awareness. So, if we are not attending to them, they cannot rise. They they can try to rise, but if we if we are clinging firmly to self attentiveness, the thoughts will be crushed then and there in their very place of rising, as Bhagavan says, describes in in Nana in the eleventh paragraph. So, the more we are self attentive, the more the less room there is for thoughts to arise. So, this attitude of surrender also helps us greatly in not succumbing to, yes, so many worrying thoughts arise in our life. We face so many difficulties in life. We all do. We're thoughts of all all sorts of difficulties we all face in life, inevitably. I mean, that's that's just the nature of embodied existence. So it's it's very natural for us to have, it's natural for us as ego to have worrying thoughts. But if we're on the path of self-surrender, we shouldn't be giving room for such thoughts. So we should, with the attitude, let Bhagavan take care of these things. My only, what Bhagavan has asked me to do is to attend to myself. Let me attend to myself. Let Bhagavan take care of all these thoughts. Bhagavan implies that in the rest of that paragraph 13, after saying that uh, being so keenly self-attentive, but we thereby give no room to rising up other thoughts. Is giving ourselves to God. In the next sentence, he says, "Well, okay, I'll put it in a different way." When he says that, many people may say, "Oh, but how can I be without thoughts? I've got so many responsibilities. I've got a family. I've got a job. I've got the bills to pay, and all these things. Doesn't this all require thought? So, isn't it necessary? How can I surrender myself when I need to think all these thoughts?" To Bhagavan preempts that question in the next sentence. He says, however much burden one places on God, he will bear all of it. The implication, uh, immediately after that sentence, in which he says we should be so keenly self-attentive that we give no room to the rising of other thoughts, the implication is even the burden of thinking we should surrender to Bhagavan so if we have worrying thoughts, okay, let Bhagavan worry about these things. Let me just cling to his feet. His feet are ever shiny in my heart as I, let me cling to him in my heart. He will take care of everything else. And he certainly will. As he Bhagavan says, however much burden we place on God, he will bear all of it. So we should never feel, or oh, if I surrender myself to God, will he let me down? No, he will never let us down. If we, if we give out all our cares and concerns and worries to him, he will take care of everything. All we need to do is to turn within and to subside back into the heart. And then he goes on in the next sentence to say, when one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all carriers, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? So what does he mean by that? Parameshwara Shakti, Parama means supreme. Ishwara means God or ruler. Uh, so the Parameshwara Shakti can mean the one sup- the one supreme power of God or the one supreme ruling power. It's that's just two ways of interpreting it, but it amounts to the same thing. That is the, the power that rules this whole our whole life and the whole universe is the power of God. So that is the parameshwara shakti. And he says that is driving all carriers. In this context, carriers means everything that ought to happen or ought or, or to be done, everything that needs to happen or needs to be done, he is doing it all. He's making it. He's not actually doing anything, he's just being as he is. But by being as he is, he is making everything happen. He, and that's what Bhagavan says he's driving all carriers. So by the as he he clarifies this beautifully in the fifteenth paragraph, a couple of paragraphs later, when he says everything, all the divine functions of creation, sustenance, uh, destruction, uh, veiling, and grace, all these divine functions, they are all happening. God is not doing anything, but they are all happening by the Isan Sanidana matratal, by the mere special nature of the presence of God. That means. By Bhagavan just being as he is, everything is happening as it's meant to happen. So he's not doing anything to drive everything, all carriers. By just being as he is, all carriers are automatically uh, by the power of his presence, everything happens as it's meant to happen. So when he is driving all carriers, that means he's making everything happen as it's meant to happen. And anything we need to do, he will make us do. So when such is the case, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to him, to that power, uh, be constantly thinking, I need to do like this, I need to do like that? In other words, Bhagavan is asking us to surrender even the burden of thinking, not only the burden of doing, the burden of even thinking about what we should do, we should surrender to him. So. We should surrender ourselves completely to him, and he will take care of everything. However much burden we put on him, he will bear all of it. And then he ends that paragraph with a beautiful analogy to illustrate this. When the passenger is traveling on a train, the train is carrying all the burden. That is, the train is carrying the passenger and the luggage and so many other things also. So, why should we as a passenger on the train suffer by carrying our luggage on our head? But our luggage is whether we carry our luggage on our head or put it aside on the seat or on the luggage rack or wherever, our luggage is going to reach its destination because it's being carried by the train. So, if we insist on carrying our luggage on our head, we are suffering unnecessarily likewise all the burdens of our life all the cares and worries and concerns if we carry these things on our head we are suffering unnecessarily we can surrender all these things all our cares concerns everything we can surrender to him he is taking care of everything he's taking care of us he's taking care of our loved ones he's taking care of the whole world everything is happening as it is meant to happen Oh, no, but so many wrong things are happening in the world. There are so many wars and pan- and, and pandemics and famines and uh, injustices and all sorts of terrible things are happening in the world. Yes, from our point of view, these seem to be terrible. But actually, if we are on this path of surrender, we must be willing to accept. But whatever is happening, however it may bad, it may seem to us to be, it, none of it could happen but by his will, because he is all-knowing, so nothing, none of these injustices that we see in the world could happen without his knowledge. He's all-powerful, so none of them could happen without his consent, and he's all-loving, so none of them could happen without it being for the ultimate good of all concerned. We think if we see people um, suffering illness or dying or things, all oh, these are great calamities. But, if these things are happening to us or to anyone else, they're happening for the good of all concerned. Such an attitude we need to have on this path of surrender. So all whatever worrying thoughts we have, not only worrying thoughts, whatever thoughts of any kind whatsoever, we, our aim should be to surrender them all to Bhagavan. But how can we surrender all our thoughts to Bhagavan? There is only one way. To turn our attention within. To the extent we turn our attention within, we thereby give no attention to these thoughts. So he will take care of everything. Everything that we may think about, he is already taking care of it. Um and then she goes on to say, at this point, I don't have the worrying thoughts anymore, but neither is there self-attention. Then the self, then that's a state of yeah, it's good to give up the worrying thoughts. But we, once we are free of the worrying thoughts, we need to make use of that freedom by turning our attention within. Because if we don't turn our attention within, other thoughts will arise. They may not be so worrying, but as she said, the mind just gets busy doing other things. Why should the mind be busy doing other things? Let the body do and the mind and speak do whatever. But we. Our attention, that is, the mind means when we talk about the mind, we need to understand we can be if we talk, if we're using the mind in the sense of attention, our attention should be going within. Even when our attention is going within, the mind, speech, and body can still be active, but. To the extent that our attention is going within, the actions of mind, speech, and body are not being done by us, they are being done by God. So um, the the key to really deep surrender is holding on to self-attentiveness. So merely giving up worrying thoughts is only the beginning of surrender, but that's not sufficient. If we want want our surrender to be deep, we need to hold on firmly to self-attentiveness. So self-attentiveness is the very heart of, of true and deep surrender. There cannot be deep. We, we can surrender to a certain extent without self-attention. But if we want our attention, our surrender to go deeper, if we want to be really to surrender ourselves completely, holding on to self-attentiveness is absolutely essential. But and to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we thereby give no room for the rising of other thoughts. But the mind will continue doing whatever Bhagavan makes it do, but they won't be our thoughts, they won't be our actions. Um, so we'll be detached, we're de- by holding on to self-attentiveness, we are detaching ourselves from the mind, speech, and body. So whatever actions may be done through the mind, speech, and body, whatever actions the mind, speech, and body may be made to do by Bhagavan. They are not actions done by us to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness. That's why self-attentiveness is absolutely key to really deep surrender. And then she goes on to say: though the goal of these two of these paths is annihilation of ego, are these paths different where the practice is concerned? Yes, initially, self-surrender. The practice of self-surrender at a superficial level is different, but for the self-surrender to become deep, it can become deep only by means of atma-vichara. So though self-surrender may begin as a a seemingly separate path, if we really follow the path of surrender, it will lead us to vichara. And only the vichara can make the surrender really deep. And finally, she asked, is it okay to alternate between the two paths at the same time? Yes, that is as much as possible. We should be turning our attention within, because turning our attention within is the deepest form of surrender. But when we are, when we, due to most of us are not constantly attending to ourselves, because we we don't yet have sufficient love to attend to ourselves. So our mind is still coming outwards. We should continue trying to turn it within, but even when we're not turning the mind within, we need to have that attitude of surrender, that attitude of whatever is happening, it's happening according to the Bhagavan's will, Therefore, let me not have any likes or dislikes. Let me accept whatever happens at his will. Whatever difficulties we face in life, yes, these are all given to him, to us, by him, for our own good. So his will is our will. That is happiness for us. That should be our attitude. So if we have that attitude when our mind is going outwards, it will be very much easier to turn such a surrendered mind back within, which is our real aim. That's a real surrender. The deep surrender is achieved only by self att- attentiveness. Um, I don't know whether Harjot is here attending, but if you are, yes is, that is. A cl- yes, is that a clear answer? Yes, Michael. Thank you. That was wonderful and very clear. Okay. <laughs> thank
2: good, you. Good.
1: Good. And it's clear on is- every
0: point, Michael. It really was. It was exceptional. They all are. I'm. I'm curious about the next one because I feel like this person does. Before I go on to the next uh, person, I just want to say Robert wrote uh, a question in chat and he wanted to know if he could ask it. Uh, when we go th- and for those people who are new with us today, we go through some uh, questions that were sent in to us first, and then we turn over to people who might have questions who are here with us live. At that point, I'll ask him to ask you his question if that's all right okay and we'll get to some yeah, other
1: can, people before we go on to the next question because this this question of surrender and uh, and uh, self investigation this is this is the very heart of Bhagavan's teachings so if anyone has any questions specifically on this topic of of surrender and uh, self investigation if you have any topic uh, question please ask now or we'll go on okay. to the next question
0: see a show of hands, or maybe it'll take a second for somebody to come up with that uh, question. I'm sure they do, but they might not be able to... There we go. Arthur has a question. Go ahead, Arthur. Hi. uh,
2: Yeah, so... uh, Hi, everyone. So, my question is uh, about desire. Desires. uh, So, even... uh, when I practice, like, uh, self-attentiveness and uh, uh, surrender, like, uh, the wish for that desire is, it it feels like the desire has more taste than uh, being in the moment. Uh, So even if I uh, feel that uh, consciousness, like the emptiness within me, like, when I do the self-attentiveness, it doesn't, uh, it feels like tasteless. It feels that the desire has more taste, and uh, it's hard to be in the present moment like that. You know, because My mind is always like,
1: Yeah, that. this is this is yes. the, this is the very nature of ego. That is the ego can, as Bhagavan <laughs> makes clear in verse 25 of the but I was discussing earlier, the very nature of ego. Is to ego cannot rise, stand, or flourish without grasping things other than itself. That is, as soon as ego comes into existence, it grasps other things. So, grasping other things is the very nature of ego. So, the in the other things, the forms that ego is constantly grasping are what are called vishayas. Vishayas means objects or phenomena, and the inclination to grasp those uh, objects or phenomena are what are called vishaya vasanas. So the the very nature of ego is to have bishaya vasanas, to have the inclination to grasp other things, because without grasping other things, it cannot it cannot survive. So the very nature of ourself as ego is to have bishaya vasanas. Bishaya vasanas are the seeds that give rise to likes and dislikes, and de- likes and dislikes in turn, turn uh, uh, um, develop into desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. So, all this is all our will, that all the desires, the hopes, and this is all our, our will. This, our will in seed form is what is called the Vishaya the, the, spa- the plants that sprout from those Vishaya are are, or the sprouted form of those Vishaya of uh, uh, likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. Since we as ego cannot survive without grasping other things, when we try to turn our attention within, but our vishaya vāsanas um, are, are constantly pulling us out. Of course, the vishaya vāsanas are not something other than ourselves, but vishaya vāsanas are our own inclinations, our own likes, our own desires, and so on. So because we are not yet willing to surrender ourselves, we have far more taste in going outwards than going back within. Going back within at first seems to us to be very tasteless, but the only way to overcome this is patient and persistent practice. The more we we turn within, the more our love to turn within and to just be as we are will increase. And the more our inclination to go outwards will decrease. The inclination to go outwards is what is called the viseyabhasanas. The inclination to go inwards, back towards our being, is what is called sattvasana. Sattvasana means the inclination to hold on to our being and thereby just to be as we actually are. So, though it may seem a bit tasteless at first, that is because we are so used to going out, we are so used to the variety entertainment. Variety is the spice of life, they say. It, it, it's certainly the spice of ego's life. Ego is always seeking variety, always seeking. If, if we get one thing that we desire, how long does that thing satisfy us? No, we want something else. We want something else. We want more. We want. So we, we are constantly seeking more and more. That's the very nature of ego. So when we are following this path of self-investigation and self-surrender, we are going against the very nature of ego. So, we are, so to speak, swimming against the current. So we need to to persevere in the practice of, however much strong inclination we have to come outwards, we should keep on trying to turn within more and more and more. Then only will those outward going inclinations slowly lose their strength, they'll become weaker and weaker, and the love to turn within, the sattvasana, will grow stronger and stronger. Bhagavan often used to say the spiritual path is nothing but a battle within our own will between the, the desires on the one hand, that's a viseyabhasana the outward going inclinations on one hand and the love to turn within and surrender ourselves on the other hand that love to turn within and surrender ourselves doesn't come from ego because the nature of ego is to is to be desire other things, so that love to turn within and surrender ourselves. That comes only from grace. So Bhagavan referred, described this this battle that's going on in our own will as the warfare, as uh, the war of grace. In Arunachcharamlay, he says, "Show me the war of grace fought in the in the the space where there's no, in the common space where there's no coming and going." We all have to fight this battle within our own will, between our inclination to go outwards and the liking to go back within. But this, though we have to play our part in this battle, the battle is really being fought by grace, because it is grace that has given us this liking to turn within. Why are we all here, sitting, talking about this subject? If it wasn't for grace? We'd be finding so many things in the world. Uh, um, we'd be watching football matches or cricket matches, or we'd be um, um, uh, gambling on the stock market, or we'd be doing so many things uh, other than this. Why have we, what, what has drawn us all to sit here today talking about this subject? It is only grace. Bhagavan used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. That is, it is grace but, that draws us to this path. It is grace that leads us along this path, but motivates us to persevere. And finally, grace will swallow us. So it's all a matter of grace. But we need to remember that grace works through us. That is grace, Bowmanoff often used to say, grace is not something that descends from heaven. Grace is there in the heart of all of us. We need to yield ourselves to that grace. That grace is always pulling our attention within. We need to yield ourselves to that grace by willingly turning our attention within, instead of constantly rushing outwards. So true surrender is turning within. Going outwards is the antithesis of surrender. We are resisting the inward pull of grace by going outwards, by allowing ourselves to be swayed by those 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 desires to experience other things. Bhagavan used to say, "People accuse God of being great uh, ungracious when when God doesn't fulfill our, our if we want this or that from God, and He doesn't give us, we oh, God's not kind to me. God's not gracious.' No." God is always gracious. Grace is the very nature of God. God and grace are not two different things. What is ungracious is we are ungracious because God is so gracious, but he makes himself so easily available to us by shining in our heart as our own being, as I am. So he's so gracious to us, but we are so ungracious to him Instead of turning within and lovingly worship and lovingly attending to him in our heart, we are constantly rushing out with seeking pleasure here and there. So it's we who are ungracious. So the grace of God is never lacking. We must be willing to yield ourselves to that. So ultimately, it's all done by grace. But we have to play our part. But grace has to work through us. Through our Grace has to make us willing. And through our willingness, it has to... Um, uh, it has to turn our attention within and thereby make us surrender ourselves completely to it. Is that a clear answer, Ahun? Yes, Michael. Thank you
2: very much. Right.
0: Very good. Yeah. Okay, Michael, Um, quick question for me. I yeah. wrote it down and I was going to ask it another week or so, but since you're pretty emphatic on this subject that we stick to it because it's so important, I want to ask real quickly, you say we should surrender our worries, our thoughts, our concerns to Bhagavan. I think I've heard you say that at least 15 minutes just in answering this question today. To me, to avoid being dualistic, which is what I try to do every day, because it's hard to purge myself of that tendency, it makes more sense to surrender to self, to say that I'm going to surrender these thoughts, these worries to self. Is that incorrect?
1: Um, no, you can take it in any way, but there's still duality. So long as there's self surrender, there's you're you're surrendering yourself to something. To something, of course, the God we are surrendering to is our own reality, but this ego that is trying to surrender itself to that reality seems to be something other than that reality. That is well, when, I, we, I, when we rise as ego, we we. Do you experience yourself as God? Do I? Yes.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, the the phantom mind-body Ted does not.
1: <laughs> no, it's not Ted. I'm talking about you. The ego oh, well. Which is, the ego that is aware of itself as I am Ted.
0: Well, that's the whole point of this effort. And exactly. when you say it's still dualistic, I try to think that, well, how can I make a difference and not think of it as being dualistic? I refer to the mind-body I, the temporary, the phantom, the you know, um, mind-body eye, and as being the same as the self, the self I am. So in that respect, I think I'm off the hook by not thinking of it as being a dualistic
1: concern. That that is there is only one eye. There is only one eye. There's only one eye. But when we rise as ego, that one eye is seemingly conflated. As I am this body, I am this person. I am Ted. So, the I that is aware of itself as I am Ted is obviously not aware of itself as God, because obviously Ted isn't God. So, it's the as ego, the the reality of ego, what we actually are, is is God. That is ego is the is the adjunct conflated awareness. I am Ted. In that adjunct-conflated awareness, what is God is only I am. Ted is an adjunct, but once these two get conflated together, that conflation is what is called ego. It's also called Chit Jada Granti. The Chit portion, the real, which is the reality, is I am. The Jada portion, that is, Chit means awareness, Jada means non-aware. So the Chit portion, is i am but jada portion is ego sorry is is ted these two mixed and conflated together that is what is called chit jada granti but not the formed by the entanglement of chit and jada it is also what is called ego it's that conflation i am this, i am ted is a conflation of two different things so that conflated i is what is called ego it's not as different I, because essentially it's the same. But because of its conflation with adjuncts, it seems to be different. So all, all sadhana begins from duality. If there was no duality, there would not be no need for any, sadha, any spiritual practice. So we begin from, spirit, from, um, from duality. But there is only one practice that is non-dualistic. That one practice is self-attentiveness. Because any other practice involves attending to something other than ourselves. Attending to something other than ourselves is obviously you've got two things: you've got the subject and the object, but, but what is attending and what is attended to. So only when we're attending to ourselves is it is that a, a truly a Dvaitabhyasa, a, dvaita a, a, a non-dualistic practice. And attending to ourself also happens to be self-surrender, because by attending to ourself, we thereby subside, that is the adjuncts drop-off, and we merge back into the pure I am that we actually are. So, yes, ultimately, the God we are surrendering to is not something outside ourself. It is our own reality. But we can't say, we, we, we we need to recognize the distinction between God who is our pure being, the pure I, and ego, which is the adjunct mixed I. It's the same I, but the distinction lies, that Bhagavan says it very clearly in verse 24 of uh, Upadesa Undiyah. That means, by existing nature, God and soul are just one substance. Uh, the upadi unavu alone is different. Upadi unavu means the adjunct awareness. That is, we can take it to mean the awareness of adjuncts. But a deeper meaning is the the the, the awareness, but it's conflated with adjuncts. In other words, ego. So it is ego that makes us seem to be something other than God, because ego is the the adjunct conflated awareness. That is the awareness that I am. When that awareness I am is conflated with adjuncts, that conflated mixture is what is called ego. And ego is what separates us from God because God is the pure I am. So long as we take ourselves to be Ted or Michael or anyone else, we we we, we are thereby seemingly separating ourselves from God. Of course, we're never we, we cannot be separate from God because God is our own reality, God is our, our very being, our very existence. So we can never be separate from him, but we, have, we, we create a seeming separation by rising as ego. So we need to, we need to recognize this seeming, record, this seeming separation, this seeming distinction, but we also need to recognize that it is only a seeming distinction. It is not real. What is real is only I am, and that is God, and that is what we actually are. Thanks, Michael. So usually, in, when we're talking about surrender, we talk about surrendering to God. Uh, Bhagavan, in that sentence in which he says, um, uh, being admonished to Paran, being, being one firmly established as oneself, without giving the slightest room to the, the least room to the rising of any thought other than the thought of oneself, is giving oneself to God. He clearly says. Tane We're giving ourselves to God, but that God is our ourself as we actually are. In other words, we're merging back into our source.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So we shouldn't You're... be. We shouldn't be in Bhagavan's Path. We don't have to be shy of using the word God. We need to understand what that word God means. It doesn't mean an old man with a grey beard sitting up in the clouds. God is that which is shining in our heart as I. Of course, it's not for those who take God to be an old man sitting up in the clouds with a long beard, or take God to be in the form of Shiva with his trident and uh, his jada and the Ganga in his jada, or take him to be Krishna playing his flute. All all this is good, because so long as our mind is going outward, it's good to, the mind needs something to hold on to. So, Bhagavan was never opposed to worship of name and form, but what, what, lies behind that name and form is not something other than ourselves; it's our own reality. So the worship of name and form has its own part to play at its own level, but ultimately we need to understand that the God we are worshipping is not something other than ourselves; it is ourselves. That's why he says in verse 8 of Upadesha India, he uses two terms, Baba. Anya means what is other. Baba in that context means meditation. So Anya Baba means meditating on what is other. And Ananya Baba means what is med- meditating on what is not other. So meditating on what is other in that context implies meditating on God as something other than ourselves. So he said, rather than Anya Baba, Ananya Baba, in which he is I, is best among all. So, uh, uh, when, we, when we start on the spiritual path, God is someone out there with some form, whether whether our idea is the Christian trinity or the, uh, the old man with a beard up in the clouds or in heaven or wherever, or whether it's uh, Shiva or Krishna or uh, Rama or whatever name or form, but names and forms or Arunacha, whatever names and forms, or Bhagavan Ramana, the names and forms don't matter. But, but we we at first we take God to be something other than ourselves. But as our devotion matures, we begin to we get the clarity to understand. But that God who appears out there in name and form is actually my own reality. So the best way of worshiping him is not worshiping the name and form, but worshiping him in his true form. The true form of God is. Atma-sarupa, our own real nature, our own our own real form is the real form of God. So, turning our attention within, that's what Bhagavan describes as Ananya bhava In other words, that means the same as atma vachara. with the understanding, with the yes, with the understanding that He is I, is the is best of all. So, Bhagavan is not at all opposed to the dualistic worship because it has its own place. But it, it's, we, 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 ultimately, that dualistic worship, that worshipping, taking God to be something other than ourselves, will, will mature into a deep understanding and a deep love for God as ourselves. We will recognize that God is God. How can God be something other than ourselves? If God were other than ourselves, then God is limited. <laughs> and we we all say God is infinite. So God cannot be other than ourselves. It, it's absurd to say but God is other than ourselves. Then God is a limited God. Then no thanks. We don't want that God. We're tired of limitation. We try and get rid of our own limitations. Why should we why should we want a limited God? We want an infinite God. And that infinite God cannot be other than ourselves. And we cannot be other than that infinite God. Because if there's so long as there's any other, then it, it's finite. So there cannot be anything other than God. God alone exists, and we are that Tatvamasi, Aham Brahmasmi. So we need not be we we the 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 duality has its own place within the realm of uh, of of practice. Of course, as Bhagavan says in Ullidanapadu. To say duality during practice, non-duality after attainment, even that is not true. Because even when one is seeking for the tenth man, who else is one but the tenth man? So even when we're taking God to be something other than ourselves, we are never anything actually other than God. But we cannot deny the seeming separation so long as we take ourselves so long as I take myself, myself to be Michael, I shouldn't be saying I am God, because that's saying Michael is God, that's absurd. So is that a satisfactory clarification? More than <laughs> satisfactory. I,
0: I terribly appreciate, I really do appreciate right. uh the depth that you went into with this uh answer. Should we go on to question number two as we're into? Uh, yes, the yes, hour? yes, yes, yes,
1: yes, we, yes. We, we, we've only got 22 more questions to go. <laughs> we have 22. Did, questions. Did you yeah. have a hand raised, you want to take that first? Well, I, I, I'd I, like... I think I think that's oh no, oh, Mukta, do you have a question on this subject?
3: Uh yes, thank you. Uh I mean self-surrender is the greatest thing. I uh, I don't have a doubt that um I really believe in um self-exist beyond this body before this body came into existence and after this body leaves but is there a way to know or experience that while being alive in this body like i existed before um, and i'm going to exist after other than as a concept
1: why do we think we are in this body because we have risen as ego and we have identified i am this body so we seem to be something within. Either we, we 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 talk at the same time as this body as I, I I am sitting, I am I am walking, I am talking. All these all these are referring to the body, but at the same time we think we think of ourselves as some thinking mind inside the body. So we our, our understanding of ourselves is confused. But are we within this body? So long as we rise as ego, we seem to be within this body. But the whole point of Bhagavan's teachings, we need to investigate ourselves to find out what we actually are. If we find out what we actually are, we will find out that we were never limited to this body. And that is true surrender. That is when we, the removal of, the eradication of ego alone is surrender. And we can eradicate the ego. But what is ego? Ego is nothing but a false awareness of ourselves, awareness of self as something other than what we actually are. So, how can we remove the false awareness? The, the snake is a misperception of the rope. So, how can we remove that misperception? The only way to remove the misperception is to perceive the rope as it is. So, if we look carefully, of a snake, what do we see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. Likewise, if we look carefully at this eye but now seems to be ego, but need, now is aware of itself as I am mukta, I am confined within the limits of this body, if we look carefully at that eye, we will see that that eye is not the ego that it now seems to be, it is the infinite whole. So then the adjuncts, once we clearly see ourselves as we actually are, the adjuncts, namely the person we now take ourselves to be Mukta or Michael or whoever, that will, the adjuncts will drop off and the pure I alone will remain. That pure I is what we always actually are, that is the one infinite whole.
3: Thank you so much.
1: So once we know ourselves as we actually are, we are no longer within the body. We, we, even now we are not within this body. We seem to be within this body because we have li- limited ourselves by rising as ego. We've limited ourselves with, as Bhagavan said, the, that one thing, I, rises as the, to the extent of the body. So we've limited ourselves within the extent of his body. This body has an extent in space. This, that is This body is here, it's not here. So it's limited in space. It's limited in time. It was born a few years earlier, it's going to die a few years hence, or a few days, or a few minutes hence, we don't know. So um, it's, it's limited. This, this body that we now take ourselves to be is limited in time and space. But are we limited? We seem to be limited because we take ourselves to be this body, but actually we are not limited. In an earlier version of verse 16 of Vuludunaptu, Bhagavan expressed it very nicely. He said, if we have a body, we will, we will be swallowed by time and space. If we are not the body, if we know ourselves as we actually are, we will we who have swallowed time and space alone will remain. So we have a choice. Are we, to, are we to be swallowed by time and space, or are we to swallow time and space? If we want to swallow time and space, we need to know ourselves as we actually are, because what we actually are is ever unlimited by time and space.
3: Thank you so much. <laughs> Michael. All, all thanks Michael. to
1: Bhagavan, because it's, yeah. this is Bhagavan's explanation.
0: I always have an eye on uh, on the clock as an old broadcaster, so I'd yes. like to get at least a second question and then okay. we can look forward okay. to... Because we have a queue lined up of people who would like to ask you questions here this morning, too. Okay, so this is from Harshita. We did have some similar comments made in reference to it, but I think the nub of the question needs to be asked here. When you say, Michael, that investigate the self, self obviously has no form. So there is nothing to investigate in that sense. But it cannot be perceived by intellectual pursuit. So it will end up being a thoughtless state, she says. Does that mean through constant self-investigation, we we anchor to the thoughtless state permanently?
1: Um, yes, we are self-performless, but
3: we,
1: though that is n- n- what we experience as ourselves now is ego this ego is the subject all forms are objects perceived by us so ego as bhagavan says it's a formless phantom or formless demon so ego has no form of its own but it can but ego cannot come into existence or stand or f- flourish without grasping the form of a body as i so but this form of a body is not what ego is but though I is formless, are we not all clearly aware I? So we can invest, though I is not a form, we can investigate I, we can investigate ourselves because we're all clearly aware of ourselves. Before we're aware of anything else, the first thing we're aware of, the one thing that we're always aware of, is our own existence, I am. In the waking state, we're aware I am. In dream, we're aware I am. In sleep, we're aware I am. The difference is, in waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. Whereas in sleep, we're aware of nothing other than our own being. We're aware of nothing other than I am. So, um, since we are always aware I am, we can attend to ourselves. That is, because we are so used to attending to forms, At first, we wonder how is it possible to attend to ourself when ourself is not a form. But if we we give it a little bit of thought, though I am not a form, I'm clearly aware of my own existence. My existence can't be said to be a form, but I'm aware of my existence. I'm aware I am. So, what we are to attend to is not to any form, but only to the reality. We are not to forms. Are all objects? We are not to attend to any object, we are to attend to the subject, or to put it even more precisely, we are to attend to the reality of the subject, because the subject is the adjunct mixed awareness, I am Hashita, whereas the the reality of that, of ego, is uh, the pure awareness I am. So ego is ego only when it's mixed with adjuncts, but, but, but even when it's mixed with adjuncts, the reality of ego is only I am, so it's I am that we need to investigate. Who am I? That is what we are. We are turning our attention back towards ourselves in order to see who or what we actually are. So it doesn't re- a form is not necessary to, a, to attend to, we can attend to our own formless being. Because we're always clearly aware of our formless being. So we need to withdraw our attention from all all forms by fixing it on our form. Um, uh, then she goes on to say, so we'll end up in a thoughtless state. That is, what is a thoughtless state? People, people have a very superficial understanding of what they, when they talk about thoughtless state. There are many people who say, um, I meditated for 20 minutes and I was in a thoughtless state all the time. No, we were not. The I that was meditating, the, the the time that is passing, the 20 minutes that pass, all those are thoughts. That is not according to Bhagavan, all phenomena, all objects are thoughts. Even the subject, the eye that knows all the thoughts is itself a thought. The only thing that is not a thought is our own pure being. So generally, when we talk about thoughts, people, that is what people generally think about when they think about thoughts, are the mental chatter, the the constant mental chatter that is going on in the mind most of the time. But that's only one form of thought. According to Bhagavan, all phenomena are thoughts, all objects are thought even the subject is a thought. Why is the subject a thought? The subject is ego. Why is ego a thought? Bhagavan often refers to ego as the thought called I. Why does he refer to it as the thought called I? Because the pure I is not a thought. That is, I am in its pure condition, is not a thought. But when I is seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts, since the adjuncts are all thoughts, that resulting adjunct-mixed awareness is a thought. So um, we end up in a thoughtless state only when ego is completely dissolved. Ego is dissolved. There are two types of, of dissolution of ego. As Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Rupadesha undia there are two two types of dissolution, Leia and Nasa. Leia means it is a temporary dissolution. So as he says in that verse, what is dissolved in Leia will rise again. What is, uh, if its form dies in Nasa, it will never rise again. <clears throat> so Nasa is the permanent dissolution of ego. Uh, Leia is a temporary dissolution of ego. We all experience layer every night when we fall asleep ego is dissolved completely in sleep but it rises again because it hasn't been destroyed so ego is just a sorry sleep is just a, a state of manolay it's a state of temporary dissolution of ego and so uh so is coma a state of temporary dissolution so is general anesthesia if you're if you're uh, given um, uh medicine to put you into a state of general anaesthesia so that they can do an operation or whatever, that is a state of manolaya. Nivikalpa samadhi, the samadhi of the yogis, is, itself, is also a state of, of manolaya. It's just a temporary dissolution of mind. That's why sooner or later, even, you, the mind comes out of it. That's why Bhagavan said this Nivikalpa samadhi, like any other state of layer, is useless. That shouldn't be our aim. Our aim is manonasa. So, what is the difference between manonasa and manolayer? Well, I mean, obviously the difference is manolaya, we come out of it. So it's only a temporary state, manonasa, we never come out of it. But how can we bring about this manonasa, a permanent dissolution of mind? Um, if we think about the states of layer, how do we, how does the mind dissolve in Layer in sleep? Because we are too tired to continue uh, grasp, constantly grasping thought, we're too tired to continue allowing the mind to flow outwards. Out of tiredness, we, give up, we let go of everything else and we subside back within. In the case of coma, we may be in coma because of a head injury. In the case of general anesthesia, we're in that state because of drugs. If we drink a lot of alcohol, we'll end up in a state like that, because of the effect of the alcohol. So it can be brought about by, by there can be physical effects, like uh, injury to the head or, um, or drugs or, 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 or anesthetic drugs or too much alcohol or whatever. It can all put us in a, in a state of manolaya. In the case of the yogis, by controlling the breath, they manage to put a stop to all mental activity. But what results from that state of mental activity is nirvikalpa Samadhi. The yogis will claim that nirvikalpa Samadhi is something different to sleep, because they say, in Nivikalpa Samadhi, I continue to be aware, whereas there's no awareness in sleep. Bhagavan pointed out, yes, that's how it seems to be from the perspective of a yogi. But actually, Sleep is not a state of non-awareness. The same awareness that is shining in nirvikalpa Samadhi is also shining in sleep and every other state of Manolaya. But because the yogis go into that state deliberately, when they come out of that state, they're able to recognize that there is awareness shining in that state, whereas they fail to recognize that the same awareness is rising in sleep. Whereas if we practice self-investigation, It will become very clear to us. But sleep is also a state of uh, of uh, of pure awareness. There's pure awareness in sleep. So, in some texts, it's given. But Bhagavan gave an an analogy. uh, That is, he gave an analogy to describe the distinction between um, between uh, nirvikalpa samadhi and sleep. That 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 he. he, he said, that is, he, it's recorded as if he said, but in sleep, the mind is, immo- sorry, in Nivitalpa Samadhi, the mind is immersed in light. In sleep, it's immersed in darkness. And he gives, he, he gives the analogy of a bucket in water. Um, You, you can pull out of a well. But the, what isn't made clear when that was recorded is Bhagavan is explaining there the view of the yogis. From the perspective of the yogi, the mind is dissolved in light, in um, in um, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, it's dissolved in uh, darkness, in sleep. But according to Bhagavan, in sleep the mind is dissolved only in light, the light of pure awareness. That when, when ego is absent, in the absence of ego, all that remains is pure awareness. So Bhagavan says sleep is not a state of darkness. So we when we read these things, how they've been recorded, they've been recorded by people who didn't clearly understand the distinction Bhagavan was talking about. Bhagavan was talking about from the yogis perspective, that is how it seems. But from Bhagavan's perspective, sleep is as, and what Bhagavan expects us to understand is that sleep, sleep is not a state of darkness, it's a state of light. We are aware of our existence in sleep. Um, and we that becomes we can understand that by thinking carefully about it and reasoning, but it becomes most it becomes more and more clear to us the deeper we go in the practices of self-investigation. So, um, all these other states of manolea—sleep, or uh, coma, or anesthesia, or drunkenness, or um, um, or nirvikalpa samadhi— these are all brought about by some artificial means—controlling the breath, or alcohol or drugs or uh tiredness or whatever. None of them are brought about by um, by self-investigation. When we investigate ourselves, we are turning our attention within. So, okay, I'll explain it in this way. This is the best way of explaining it. So, in the case of Manolea, the mind subsides. By some means other than self attentiveness, so the the what remains in Manolaya in sleep or ni samadhi or any coma or any state is is pure awareness I am, but that pure awareness shines forth only after the subsidence of ego, because the ego has already subsided by pr- pranayama or by tiredness or by drugs or whatever um, so the, 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 though pure awareness alone shines in sleep, it doesn't destroy ego because the ego is absent. That is, ego first disappears and then pure awareness alone remains shining. But in the case of Atmavichara, we are turning our attention within towards the light. So the, in ego, in, in apmabhichara, when the ego is finally dissolved completely, it is dissolved by seeing itself as pure awareness. When ego sees itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. So that is how the the destruction of ego can be brought about, only by self-attentiveness, by attending to ourselves so keenly, that we cease to be aware of anything else, and thereby become aware of ourselves as the pure awareness that we actually are. As soon as we are aware of ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego. Ego is thereby destroyed. And pure awareness alone remains eternally, as it always is. So this is the difference. So when we talk about a thoughtless state, we're talking about only two possible states, either mano layer or mano nasa. If it's a temporary state, a temporary dissolution of ego, it is layer. If it is permanent, it is nasa. But nasa can be brought about only by self-investigation. And then Hashita goes on to say. Does that mean through constant self-investigation, we anchor to the thoughtless state permanently? That is, through self-investigation, we see ourselves as we actually are. Because what are we investigating? We're investigating who am I. We're trying to see what we actually are. When we see what, what we actually are is pure awareness, the more we attend to ourselves, the less we will attend to, the more we uh, more we our attention is focused on ourself. For more, it's withdrawn from all other things. So when our self-attentiveness becomes deep enough, we cease to be aware of anything other than ourself. Thereby, we experience ourselves as a pure awareness that we actually are. Thereby, we we uh, we ego is destroyed. When ego is destroyed, all other thoughts are destroyed. So yes, I'll, the result of self-investigation is the eternal state devoid of thoughts. And eternal doesn't mean that it's going to begin at some point in future. Even here and now, we are in that state. But because we have seemingly risen as ego, we seem to be in a state of thought. But the reality is we are always in a state devoid of thought thought, there's no such thing as thought at all. The root of all thought is ego. If we investigate ego, we find there's no ego at all. In the absence of ego, there there cannot be any other thoughts. So, Hashita, I hope this answers your question adequately. Do you have any further questions on this? I think maybe she's not here today.
0: I think she's gone. So why don't we move on then? And I've got a brief interruption here because I was just informed about something I already know about, and I was going to ask you about it next month. Uh, a friend of ours here on the program, McNair Ezard, pointed out to me that your brand new book, Congratulations, is in order. Ramana Maharshi. I, ha-
1: I haven't done anything. I just wrote an introduction to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, of course, but you, you compiled it, you put it together. Yeah, you I, I didn't do the
1: compiling. I did all the chattering. <laughs> and the translating. But the co- compilation was done by Sandra. That was in okay. Kali, her, her baby.
0: Uh, the, the name of it, in case people are interested, as I know they will be, is Ramana Maharshi's 40 verses on what is the ultimate on being as you actually are. Since you had absolutely nothing to do with this, would you like to talk <laughs> about it a little bit more today, or maybe a month from today?
1: Well, I can just say briefly, that is, um, in my blog i i often refer to verses of Uludunapura and i often explain them there are also many videos in which i've um i've gone through the verses of bulu and explained them so from from trans, uh, that is um uh, uh sandra made transcripts of many of those videos and uh, taking the transcripts and um extracts from my blog she compiled I think uh, I don't know. I think she said something like four thousand words on of explanation on each verse, approximately. The translations are mine. The translations are the same translations that are on my uh, blog. Um, So she she the the um, explanations are my explanations, but compiled by her. And because some. That is, when we write and when we talk, we, it's different. We, we express ourselves differently in writing. In writing, we're more precise. In talking, we are less precise. So obviously, when she is um, transcribing the videos, she had, to, I, I assume, I don't know, I, have, I myself haven't read this book yet. <laughs> um, I haven't had time. But I, I assume she had to do a certain amount of, um, of trimming down the, the verbal explanation to make it more uh, coherent, and more succinct. So, I, and she combined that with explanations that i have given in writing. So, it, it's uh, it, as I say, it's her. Ba- she, she, she has put all the hard work into it.
0: Well, thank you, Michael. You are terribly modest, which is not a.
1: No, it's not me. Even even if you say, oh, but it's your idea. No, it's not my ideas. I'm just saying, I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has explained to us. So really, my role in it is incidental.
0: Well, we'll say that you only had a tiny incidental role, if anything, although the translations are yours and the explanations are yours.
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, all ultimately come from Bhagavan. Very I hope. Very if good. there's anything wrong in the explanations, sure, I take responsibility for that. But if there's any clarity in any of the explanations, it can come only from Bhagavan.
0: McNair just joined us there. Thank you for giving me this uh, fuel to pump uh, Michael with, because uh, he's and, and, a role model for the world on being humble. <laughs> I, and, I
1: and she also asked me to write an introduction. And she even compiled some ideas from, she picked up from here and there from my writings, to give me some ideas. And she wanted, I think, the introduction to be about 4,000 words, but I ended up <laughs> writing about 12,000 words, um, as tends to happen. when Once I start writing, I tend to get carried away. So there's quite a, a, a long introduction, um, which again, ultimately it all comes from Bhagavan.
0: Well, thanks for correcting me on that because yeah. In addition to translations of yours the explanations of yours the four thousand word introduction is yours too 12, and i'm looking and forward to it, it. <laughs> i did get us i did get a sneak copy uh as it was being published and uh it's it, i want to really devote serious time to it thank you very much if you ever care to bring it up we could do it on one of our first sundays if that's okay
1: yeah yeah
0: uh, we could. okay and now to people who have been patiently in the queue from an hour and a half ago Robert, are you still with us? And would you like to ask your question of Michael? Go ahead, Robert.
3: Michael, in a session with uh, the Houston group, uh, in closing, uh, you made this statement, and it stunned me. And uh, it's been running around in my head. You were talking about ego again, so this is is apropos of what we've been talking about. And you said, as, as a closing statement, was, don't forget, Robert, or remember, Robert, it's not... Robert's ego. It's ego's Robert. Would you clarify, please? That is,
1: Robert is judder. Ro- Robert is a collection of five sheaves. The five sheaves of a, a physical body, the life that animates that body, and the mind, intellect, and will that are functioning within this body. These five sheaves make up the person Robert. But there is an I that is aware of itself as I am Robert. Whereas all these five sheaves are jada. Jada means they're devoid of awareness. What is aware of itself as I am Robert is not Robert, but it's ego. Because e- Robert has no awareness. It is it is ego that is aware of itself as I am Robert. So we need so we need to let, let we need to, say, to, we need to sl-
3: distinguish ego from what ego takes itself to be. So it's absurd for us to run around thinking that we are self-initiating doers. There's an absurdity in that. Um,
1: But, well, so long as we... Because as ego, we always identify ourselves as this bundle of five sheaves. There are three instruments of action, mind, speech, and body. Because we experience these as ourselves, we experience it as I am thinking, I am talking, I am sitting, I am walking, I am running or whatever. Whatever actions are done by mind, speech or body are experienced by us as I am doing them. So doership is the very nature of ego. And along with doership comes experiencership. As Bhagavan says in verse 38 of Ulajanaftu, if we are the doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. But then he goes on to say, when one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action, the doer of action is obviously they're referring to ego. So when we investigate ourselves, when we know ourselves by investigating who is this ego who thinks it is doing act who who experiences itself as a doer, um, doership will depart
3: and all the three karmas will come to an end.
1: So who, the three...
3: who is it that is saying right now the word that is an act of absurdity? Who is saying that? Ego. So Thank you. yeah,
1: the ego, ego is an absurdity. Even before it starts acting, ego is an absurdity. Because ego is a conflation of two completely contrary things. It is chit Granti. It is a conflation of awareness with what is but not when, aware. But when
3: ego sees its own absurdity, what's happening? Uh, ego
1: has the ability to reflect on its own. It, it, to 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 ego though as ego we always experience ourselves as I am this body I am this person we are able to understand that though this person is what I seem to be this cannot be what I actually am because I continue to be aware of myself in sleep when this person is completely absent I'm not aware of myself as 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 Robert or Michael when I'm asleep. So this this person I take myself to be cannot be what I actually am. Even I though want you to answer this my question. A is, question
3: what yeah. is happening when ego says, "I am an absurdity"? What is happening there? Understanding. It is yeah. recognizing yeah. its own under.
1: But that Thank isn't you. that. That is merely understanding. That is ego is using its intellect to distinguish between itself yeah. and what it seems to be. But it's still experiencing itself as what it seems to be. I understand. Yeah, but why I often say this, it's not ego. It's not Robert's ego. It's ego's Robert. Because people often say my ego, but it's not my ego. (laughs) Who? Who is the? Who is the? the me who says it's my ego. It's only ego. If,
3: if it were, if it were Robert's ego, then we would re- really be in a world of duplicity, of double, of of multiplicity. Yeah. But yeah, there's yeah, only one. yeah. 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 Got it. That Thank is, you. Because, because
1: you are aware of yourself as I am Robert, it seems to you that Robert is aware. So, in your experience, Robert seems to be aware. So every other person you see also seems to be aware. It seems to you that Michael is also aware. But neither Michael nor Robert are aware. The eye that is aware of itself as Robert or Michael is what is aware. Very good, Michael. Thank you. So it's very, people often, uh, um, that that this is one of the fundamental principles of Bhagavan's teaching. Ego is neither the body, nor is it satchit. It is something that rises between the two. And when Bhagavan talks about body, he means all the five sheaves, as he clarifies in verse five of Uluddinaptu. The body is a form composed of five sheaves. And then in verse 24, he says this, this Jada body, referring to all the five sheaves, does not say I. That's a metaphorical way of saying it. the body is not aware of itself as I. Satchit does not rise. In between, one thing, I, rises at the extent of a body. Since it's aware of itself as I, it's not the body, because the body is not aware. Since it rises, it is not satchit. So it's neither the body nor satchit. It's some spurious entity that rises between the two. From sacchit, it, it borrows its existence and awareness. From the body, it borrows its form. But it is actually neither. That is why he goes on to say, this is Chichara Granti. If you have two pieces of string, if they become tightly entangled, you've got a knot. That knot is not either piece of string. If you, if you separate the strings, you've got no knot. So the knot is something that is formed by that entanglement. So by this conflation of I, with this judder body, this, this bundle of five she's that
3: conflated mixture is what is called ego. Would it be fair to say that it's awarenesses or consciousnesses or self's intention that there should be an ego?
1: No, it
3: is absolutely wrong. Self has well, no on, intention. On, what you, what you it happens anyway. So that accident, we call it an accident? No, it's not an accident. It has never happened if you
1: look within to see <laughs> who am I, you will find there never was any such thing as ego. It's an illusion. Yeah. Yeah. Was the birth of the son of, son of a barren woman, was it an accident or was it intentional? It was neither, because there's no such thing as a, the son of a barren woman. Can we move
0: on? By the way, I like what you said. It summed it up in a handful of words. It has never happened when referring yeah, to the yeah. ego and everything else. Yeah, yeah, That's my yeah. default response to everything that comes up in my life.
1: But <laughs> though it has never happened, it seems to be happening moment to moment. Yeah. So but it's to, amazing in order what, to deceive it it's never happened, we need to look deep within and see what we actually are.
0: But it's amazing how it turns down the heat almost immediately to chaos in the real moment in your life when I think... What am I concerned about? It's never happened. This chaos. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't go away. It reduces its intensity.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when, when we begin to see through the, the, the when we begin to recognize that all this, all that we are now experiencing, though it seems to be so real, the more we come to understand that it's actually wholly unreal. It it, it, that 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 relieves us from so much burden, and we are able to recognise that to the extent to which we look within. Because the more we look within, the more we are able to, more we become aware of ourselves as something distinct from this body of mind. The more we there, but we still experience this body of mind as ourselves. But we at the same time, in parallel with that, we are getting more and more we we are seeing more and more clearly but we are actually something distinct from what we now seem to be so all these things um this, this is how we become detached this is how we um we 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 gain that um we we are less affected by these things yes we are still experiencing all the difficulties of life one of the later questions someone asked um I wasn't going to deal with it today, but I can just deal with it quickly now. Um, someone asked. Um,
0: uh, and, and tell me the number of it when you get to it so I can scratch it yeah, off.
1: Okay. Um, oh, ah, yeah, number 11. And Vaisha asked okay. does, the, does the dream change as we get closer to ego dis- dissolution? I.e., life is karma there are less issues, etc., and it gets modified, I k- karma is kinder to us, or modified. Especially if I or the ego is the one manufacturing the world, then does it change as ego becomes purer? No, it's a simple answer. But, but what we are experiencing in this dream is... What we are given to experience in Prarabdha. That does not change. That is what has been allotted to us by Bhagavan. So the, the dream is not going to change in any way. However, it is true in a sense to say life is karma. Life is karma not because there are less issues, life is karma because we are less affected by the issues, we're less concerned about them. Because we are, we, by, as we go deeper and deeper within, we detach ourselves more and more from these things. So though we are still experiencing all these difficulties, life is still life will never be easy. Embodied the very nature of embodied existence is difficult. Life in this world is difficult. We have to face all types of people and all types of situations, but so many problems in life. These problems won't get any less, but our attitude towards them will change. Whatever yeah. difficulty, this is where, again where surrender is coming in. We naturally surrender more and more, but the deeper we go within in the path of self-investigation, the more that attitude of surrender naturally uh, blossoms in our heart. So we are less affected by these things. Okay, we may have a very annoying neighbor. We may have someone who's causing a lot of trouble in our life. But that's all happening by Boban's will, so that it happened. Mm-hmm. We we are less affected by it. The, the problem is still there. We may have to act, sometimes respond outwardly. We may have to, that is sometimes in certain situations, it's necessary to respond. It's appropriate to respond. But inwardly, we'll be less affected by these things.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that. And for all the people who joined us today who are new or newer to Ramana than others are, and there are 37 of us here today. That needs to be stressed, I think. Life is calmer. The the longer you're on this trail, the more... Life is not calmer.
1: We are calmer.
0: Well, we are calmer.
1: (laughs) Life will remain as it is. Life is always a headache.
0: I'll take it either way. (laughs) I'll take it either way. But we're less affected
1: by the headache.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) a, A technical question I'm going to ask real quickly for a very, very fast answer. And that is a technical question. Cheryl, who's been joining us today, she says, at least on her end, there is a ping pong sound heard continuously. Does anybody else hear that? Is anybody? Um, not
3: not you, here. Oh.
0: Not here, okay.
1: I, I, I have heard people saying, some people say they get, um, they get sensations in the head or sensations in the chest, all sorts of things. It doesn't matter what we experience, even if God himself comes and stands in front of us, even if Lord Shiva comes and stands in front of us, it doesn't matter. Whatever experience arises, no experiences arise for the experiencer. The experiencer is ego. Uh, We are not concerned about experiences. We are investigating the truth of the experiencer. So yeah. whatever sensations or b- visions or b- whatever it may be, whatever sounds or, or, or sensations we may feel, that is not our concern. To whom does yeah. it all appear?
0: Yeah. Ping-pong or God, it's all yeah, the same. Yeah, but yeah. on that point, Sophia just sent well, me a chat can, answering can the question. I,
1: can, can I just ask, say one thing? They, they, sure. it's, a, it's not directly related to the question, but it's a little connected with the answer I gave. Once uh, someone, not understanding what, is, what Bhagavan is, asked him, Swami, if God appeared before you, what would you ask for? Bhagavan said, I would ask him not to appear. I don't want to, because if he appears, he's going to disappear. I don't want a God who appears or disappears. I want the God who is ever shining.
0: God is not dualistic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, uh, Sophia says the sound, she's got the answer nailed here. The sound is uh, that she means... Uh, that, that Cheryl means is people logging in during the session. She can.
1: Oh, uh, that's it's referring to. Sorry, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, I've been hearing that. So I thought it was talking about in self investigation. People say, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. No, but I,
0: it's a good answer. I'm glad. I'm glad you uh, thought yeah, that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes.
0: So, anybody else have a question for Michael? Since we have a good twelve minutes here.
1: We we've, we've still got twenty. 20, I think we've done two out of 23 questions, so we still got 20, 21 to go.
0: Okay, uh, actually we did three, you just did the third one. Well, okay, question I did
1: four. the third one, right, so we've only got 20 remaining. Well, I've
0: got one, I'm burning to ask, but it's a silly, it'll be the stupidest question you hear uh, okay. uh, this week. My fear is that self-investigation might exhaust itself. How much can we examine ourselves?
1: Before (laughs) before the investigation exhausts itself, the investigator will be exhausted. That is, the aim of the investigation, we are investigating, who am I? The more we go deep within, the more the investigator will dissolve. So the, the end of the investigation is the dissolution, the permanent annihilation of the investigator.
0: Well, that's good, but I, I think of myself as being a pretty simplistic person. Not to intentionally put myself down, I, I question when I go into self inquiry, what's going to come up now, uh, and what what is left. Because that,
1: that is not self investigation. Whatever comes up is something other than yourself. We okay. are not looking for any. We are not looking for any experience. We're not looking for anything to happen. We are looking for that. We are investigating what is permanent.
0: We're investigating what is what? Permanent. Okay.
1: What is permanent okay. is only our own being. So mm-hmm. we, anything that happens is something other than ourselves. So we're not, we're not looking for anything to happen. We're looking, that is, by investigating what is permanent, that all happening will eventually cease. Because all happening happens only in the view of ego. And when ego turns its attention within to see what it actually is, it loses itself in its own being. Yeah.
0: Thanks for explaining. So, by that.
1: investigating what is permanent, we remain. We 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 merge back into what is permanent because what is permanent is what we actually are.
0: Well, speaking for myself, I do get around to what is permanent—the the only true self there is—the only. You know, such you don't
1: have to get around to it. You are that always. <laughs> your own be, your, your I am is permanent. Everything else is impermanent.
0: My so feeble, all we have
1: to yeah. do is to hold on to what is permanent, and the impermanent will drop off.
0: Yeah, it's when my feeble imaginary human mind gets around to it. Yeah. I should say. Okay.
1: Um, in in that- in the classical Advaita Vedanta. They, they say that in order to follow this path there are, there are four qualifications the first qualification is nitya and nitya vastu vivika, that is distinguish the ability to distinguish the permanent from the impermanent once we have that once we begin to distinguish the permanent from the impermanent then we gain vairagya which is the second qualification we we become we we lose interest in the impermanent and we become more interested in the permanent this first qualification is so important because this is intimately related to this practice of self investigation because so many people think they're looking for something we're not looking for anything that is, we are investigating what we always are. So we're not looking for any new experience. Bhagavan often used to say, if jnana were a new experience, it would be useless because whatever is new, whatever comes anew, has to go. Jnana is permanent. So we're not looking for any new knowledge. We are just trying to shed the wrong knowledge. By seeing ourselves as we actually are, We shed the false awareness, I am this body. By shedding that false awareness, which is ego, we thereby give up everything else because everything else exists only in the view of that I that is aware of itself as I am this body. So when that I is surrendered, everything is surrendered. That's why he concludes verse 26 of Uludunapoli by saying, therefore, investigating what this is, by this, he means ego. Investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. So in this path, we are not seeking to gain anything. We are seeking to lose everything. If we mm-hmm. lose everything, what remains is what cannot be lost. We we can lose everything else. We cannot lose our own existence because our own existence is eternal.
0: It always helps to have that thought amplified. I just came up with the shortest question in the list. And you have time to answer it, Michael. We have time to... And it's from uh, David Roberts, who's here from uh, Victoria in Canada. David, do you want to ask the question or should I just read it? Uh, you know, I think, uh, Ted and Michael, Michael has already answered this question vicariously many times today. Uh, so uh, it was a short question, but I don't know whether Michael cares to may, answer it. May,
1: well. Maybe it's a good Point to summarize, to conclude today.
0: Well, then the question is, uh, is one who has realized the self still subject to the laws of karma in the same way as one who's not? No.
1: That's what Bhagavan said. He says that very, very clearly in verse 38 of Voodoo which I referred to earlier. Yeah. That is, what is subject to the law of karma is our self as ego. Because, as ego, we identify ourselves with this bundle of five sheaves. So, the actions that are done by mind, I am thinking this, I am feeling this. Um, uh, the actions that are done by speech, I am speaking. The actions that are done by body, I am standing, I am sitting, I am walking, I'm or whatever the actions of the body. So, because the ego identifies itself with this bundle, It experiences all the actions done by this bundle as actions done by me. This bundle, I'm referring to the bundle of five sheaths that make up the person we seem to be. So, ego is the doer of action because of its identification. And because it's the doer of action, it has to experience the resulting fruit. So, what Bhagavan says in verse 38 is, if we are the doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. So the, the actions we do under the sway of our basanas are what are called agamya. The agamya bears fruit. The fruit gets stored in sanchitta. From the sanchitta, Bhagavan selects which fruit we should experience in each lifetime. So the what we experience in our everything that we experience in this lifetime, everything that happens to us, not what happens by us, but what happens to us is according is, is all Uh, the fruit of our past actions that have been allotted for us to experience in this lifetime. But then he—so that's what he says, that's what he implies in the first sentence. If we have a doer of action, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. If, um, if, When one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action—in other words, who am I, this ego that is aware of itself as I am doing this—doership will depart and all the three karmas will come to an end. Doership will depart means ego will depart, because ego is the one who has doership. So long as there's doer- ego, there's inevitably doership, and consequently there's experiencership. Doership and experiencership are just two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other, because if we have a doer of action, we have to experience the resulting fruit. So the, the disappearance of doership is accompanied by disappearance of experienceship. Why? Because the doer and the experiencer is ego. When we investigate and know ourselves as we actually are, ego is thereby ceases to exist, and all the three karmas will thereby come to an end. Because the karmas are are only for ego. It's ego that does agamya. It's ego that re- experiences the fruit of agamya. The three karmas are agamya, sanchita, and prarabdha. Sanchita and prarabdha, though they're referred to as karmas, strictly speaking, they're not karmas. They're karmapala. They're the fruit of karmas. But sanchita is those fruit that we have, but haven't yet been allotted for us to experience. Prarabdha is those fruit but have been allotted for us to experience in this lifetime. All three come to an end. And then he says, mukti nile. that means that, that this is is not there, but it implies this is liberation, which is eternal. Why does he say liberation is eternal? Does he mean from that point onwards, it is eternal? No, eternal means past, present, and future. It's, I mean, it's beyond the limits of time. So it's not, once we attain liberation, it's not like, oh, I have attained liberation. Previously, I was in ignorance, in bondage. Now I'm liberated. It's not like that, because the the one who is in bondage, in fact, bondage itself is nothing but ego. So liberation is only the destruction of ego, as he says in verse 40 of Ulu When ego is destroyed, what remains is our eternal state, which is of, we are ever free. Our real as, as we actually are, we are ever free. We have never been bound. We have never risen as ego. This idea that he teaches us there, he emphasizes in a verse in Ulludunaptu because in some um, Advaitic texts, it is said that though Agamya and Sanchitta cease, Prarabdha remains for Vanyani. But Bhagavan's reply to that, what Bhagavan says about that in the verse in Ulian to say that, uh, but but uh, but alone remain but Sanchitra and uh, Gamya cease, but prarabdra alone remains for Vinyani, is an answer given to the question of others. In other words, it is it is not the It is not the truth. It is is a diluted truth given to satisfy others. Those others are those who don't understand the deeper teachings of Bhagavan. The deeper teachings of Bhagavan is that the jnani is not a body. We see Bhagavan as a body, but Bhagavan doesn't see him as a body. Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani. Jnana means pure awareness. Uh, Often it's translated as knowledge, but it means knowledge in the sense, in this context, it means knowledge in the sense of awareness. So pure awareness is jnana. As he says in verse 13 of Uludanavtu, jnana mam tane me. one self who is jnana alone is real. So what we actually are is jnana. So he often used to say jnana me jnani. Jnana alone is the jnani. What does he mean by that? Jnani means the one who, who has Jnana, the one who knows Jnana. But jnana, if Jnana is pure, pure awareness, who can know pure awareness? Can pure awareness ever be an object of awareness? Obviously, it cannot. So, what knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. That is what he means by saying Jnana alone is the Jnani. It's, uh, that is pure awareness alone is what knows pure awareness. So, the jnani is only pure awareness. The jnani is not the body or mind, though in our view, Bhagavan seems to be a, a, appears to us in human form. He is not that human form. He is that pure awareness that is ever ever-shining in our heart as I. So there's a verse in Guru Vachakukai in which Bhagavan says, uh, I can't remember what the verse number is, but it's, I think it's in a chapter on Guru or something. He says there, there's, uh, there's no a more vile and heinous sinner than those who take Guru to be a human form. Though he appears in though Vijnanaguru appears in human form, it is not that human form. So, we shouldn't take Bhagavan to be the person we take it, take it he seems to us to be. If, if Bhagavan were that person, as that person, yes, of course, he's seeing the world, he's experiencing. Um, uh, for that body, there seems to be a Pararabda, but he should live for 54 years in Tiruvannamalai, answer so many questions, cut vegetables, write poetry. And eventually get cancer and, and pass away, there seems to be a body of prarabdha for that body. But that prarabdha is not Bhagavan's prarabdha because he is not the body, but he seems to be. That's why he says the answer that prarabdha remains for Vinyani is an answer given to the question of others. In fact, Adi Shankara himself, in his commentaries on the, um, on the Prasthana trea, on the Upanishad uh, Brahma Sutra and Bhagavad Gita. I, I haven't read these, of course, but apparently he, even Adi Shankara says, but uh, exactly what Bhagavan is referring to here, but the Prarabdha and Agamya, sorry, but uh, sorry, but Agamya and Sanchita will cease for Vijnani, but Prarabdha will, alone will remain. But Bhagavan is not criticizing Shankara, He's saying he's explaining why Shankara said that. It's an answer given to a question of others, because Shankara wrote his commentary on the Prastanatraya not for spiritual aspirants. He wrote it to establish that Advaita is the correct interpretation of uh, Vedanta of the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita. Of course, everyone says their own interpretation is correct, but Shankara. Argued it, but so his his commentaries on most texts were his arguments uh, in favour of Advaita being the correct interpretation. Such arguments are necessary for others, not for those who are truly following the spiritual path. That's why Bhagavan, in his commentary on sorry, in his introduction to his Tamil tr- translation of Vivekananda he said though Shankara wrote all those prasthana treya, uh, the the, the Prastanatraya Bharsha, a commentary on all the Prastanatraya. The Prastanatraya means the three source texts of Vedanta: the Upanishads, the, or at least the ten or twelve principal Upanishads, the uh, Brahma sutra, and the Bhagavad Gita. These are called the Prastanatraya, the three source texts. Shankara wrote commentaries on all of these, but Bhagavan said in his comment in his Translate in his introduction to his translation of, 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 um, of uh, Viva Kachinamani, Bhagavan said, since this, these, his, these commentaries are not necessary or not useful for spiritual aspirants, he summarized the essence of his teachings in this Viva so what Shankara said in his Prasana, Treya Bhasha is an answer to the question of others. But the truth is, for jnani, there is no prarabdha because there's no body, there's no there's no one remaining to experience any prarabdha. Prarabdha is is what is the fruit of action. The fruit of action is a set of experiences. Without an experiencer, how can there be any experience? So for jnani, there is no karma, but for us who see Bhagavan as a body, yes, Bhagavan seems to be doing actions; he seems to be experiencing the, the, um, the fruit of, of actions. But that's only in our agniyana drishti, our uh, our ignorant view. But that seems to be the case. Bhagavan is neither a doer nor experiencer. He is pure. Bhagavan is satchit itself. He is the infinite ocean of Satchit. He he never does anything. He is immutable. But by his merely being as he is, everything happens as it's meant to happen. And not only is he pure being and pure awareness, he's also infinite happiness and infinite love. So because he... In his view, none of us are other than him, himself. He doesn't see us as the people we take ourselves to be. He sees us as we actually are. So he has infinite love for us as himself. And his love for us is what we experience as the working of his grace in our life.
0: Sounds so, like a pretty good note to lend on.
1: He seems to be the great doer, but he doesn't do anything. <laughs> Bhagavan often used to say that. Uh, doing without doing. Knowing without seeing. without seeing, Knowing without knowing.
2: Yeah.
1: Because we, can't, we cannot grasp, with our finite mind, we cannot grasp the state of banyani. Because the state of banyani is infinite, infinite being, infinite awareness, infinite love. How can our finite mind grasp that? If we want to know the state of banyani, we can know that only by being that.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Michael. This has just been wonderful. And, and David, shame on you. <laughs> he didn't answer your question before as thoroughly as this. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, lots of times I think questions that I have in my mind are already answered because of his comments on somebody else's questions. But when you go directly to the question you posed... That was a tremendous answer. And we're very, very grateful that you show up here all the time. And the greatest testimony I can say about how it affects all of us is that we started out with uh, 20, uh, half an hour ago, we had 37 people. And we still have 27 people here. So we're all thirsty. And you quench our thirst on a monthly basis, for which I extend my I, uh, own gratitude. And I think others I do. I'm
3: just
1: pointing out what Bhagavan is saying. It is Bhagavan who is quenching our thirst. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm not going to credit you with any more answers because I know they all come from Bhagavan. Thank well, you very much.
1: Whatever is, any clarity in my answers comes from Bhagavan. Any well, anything uh, that's wrong in my answer, there may be. I, I I I am I am a fallible human being, so there may be wrongs in my anything wrong in my answers comes from me. Anything that is, any true clarity in my answers can come only from Bhagavan because he is the source of all clarity
0: and speaking of clarity there's only one other person i listen to on a regular basis who even approaches your degree of clarity and you've met him and you've debated him and that was swami sarva priyananda and i found out from uc who i just recently interviewed that he's working on getting michael james and swami sarva priyananda back for round 2 for a second two two and a half hour uh video not confrontation but a loving uh, discussion yeah. on points that you all have mostly similar viewpoints. Yeah. So I look yeah. forward to that. Thank you, Michael, and thanks all the people who are still here. Sorry we didn't get to more questions. They're all being kept and one day. I'll look and see that nobody's sending in questions for a particular month. I'll go back and use those so everything will get uh, tended to in an orderly basis. Thanks, yeah. Ted. Thank you. Thank you all for showing up. And see you next month, Michael, and for anybody who's new from other countries joining us, feel free to join us any Sunday at this time for our San Diego version of a discussion on Ramana, which is increasingly international, so feel right at home. See you all next time, whenever that is.